Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode two of the Danny Nerdnik podcast. My name is Daniel Schwartz, and this, oh boy, this is going to be a fun one today, guys. Uh, well, welcome to the middle of September. Summer 2016 seems to be wrapping up. Uh, we're getting a few more warm days here in beautiful New York City. But we're starting to lower the temperature a little bit. And as the temperature drops, it makes me kind of wistful. And it makes me want to think about summer. It makes me nostalgic for the summer. So let's today, instead of our usual uh, forward-thinking food trends, let's take a look back at the summer of 2016's food trends. So the first one uh, was given to me by an old friend of mine, now uh, over at Food Republic, Jess Capadia, who, when asked uh, what her favorite food trends of summer 2016 were, the first thing out of her mouth was a definitive frosé. That's right, frozen rosé. Imagine, if you will, uh, you're at 7-Eleven, and you want a Slurpee, right? But you don't want cherry or Coke or even Mountain Dew-flavored Slurpee. You want something with a little more kick. So you just take the Slurpee machine back home. It doesn't matter that you don't know how to operate the thing. You got a Slurpee machine. So you go ahead and you put it on your kitchen counter and you plug it in. And you take your favorite rosé and you put it in the tumbler and you turn the thing on. A couple hours later, you're going to have what amounts to a, a rosé sh- slushy, A frosé. That's right. Think about it. You've got your big gulp cup with your frosé and you're sitting in the park. You're just sipping and enjoying and enjoying. And everybody around you is, they don't know. They don't know what you got in your hand. They don't know what's going on. Ah, it would be so cool. I wish I'd gotten a chance to taste some of this stuff. Although it's not all sunshine and rainbows with frosé. It's not all really the only... Uh, problem I can foresee with consuming this delicious pink drink in public would be standing up from your park bench that you're sitting on and people are like, ah, ha ha, you know, delicious Slurpee, cherry Slurpee. You get up and you realize that the frosé has kind of gone to your head a little bit. And when you try to walk away, you stumble and then you get booked by the NYPD for public intoxication. Ain't that about a B? Huh. All right. So, uh, Food Trend 2016 Summer number two, something that um, kind of hit about the same time another big thing from Summer 2016 hit is poke, which is a Hawaiian raw fish dish. It seems to be everywhere right now. You've got spots just kind of popping up out of the ground or out of the ocean, depending on you know how fresh your product is going to be. So Poke uh, really hit New York about the same time Pokemon Go did, so I can only assume that there was some kind of capitalization on that um, to jam the name Poke down people's throats. I I guess they saw an opening and they just kind of went with it, and it, it seemed to do well. You know, everybody loves sushi, everybody loves sashimi, and this, I think, might just be the... Um, the next step, the obvious evolution of poke. And Eater is saying uh, that 
it seems to be one of the very good summer trends that might have staying power, even if L.A. seems to already be sick of it. That said, I feel personally that poke is probably just going to be a summer thing, and its popularity is going to peter out as soon as it gets cold, and people are going to want something warm uh, and hearty. Now, I'm not saying that poke isn't hearty. I'm just saying it's cold and raw, and in New York City, where I live, cold and raw describes the winter, not winter food. Uh, another thing we're seeing a lot in the city, and I can attest to this personally, is rolled ice cream. There's a spot on McDougal Street. I'm not entirely sure of the name, but if you walk down McDougal in the village, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, it's an ice cream store, and they take their ice cream base, and they put it on a really cold slab, like a, a slab of metal. It's either metal or marble. I need to get a better look at it but it's frozen, and what they do is they take their ice cream base and they spread it out really thin on this, uh, this frozen slab, and they put toppings into it, and then they take what, is, what amounts to a, a uh, paint scraper, or a, a, a um, oh gosh, a, a bench scraper, I guess, and they move it along underneath really slowly and you get these delicious sheets of rolled ice cream. It's very interesting. It tastes great and the potential for toppings and fillings and mix-ins are endless. Um, I think this actually has its roots in modernist gastronomy as one of the tools in modern modernist gastronomy is something called an anti-griddle which is pretty much the same thing as the slab that I was talking about. Uh, with an anti-griddle, instead of heating up on a surface, the surface cools down to sub-zero temperatures. So you can pour uh, like a liquid on it, or you can put um, uh, something on the surface and have one side be cold and frozen, and then the inside or top be a little warmer and malleable, and you'll get a very interesting uh, difference in texture. Now, uh, I, I think you can see how I'm like drawing the connection, drawing the line between these two things. Uh, and I don't know, it, it just seems to me as someone who's taken gastronomy classes and seen uh, modernist gastronomy in person, never actually having done it, they didn't really let us do that in the associates program. I went to CIA, uh, like I said last time, I went to CIA about the same time that modernist gastronomy was peaking. Um, and the gentleman who wrote the modernist, modernist cuisine books, um, I can't remember his name, uh, he came to CIA when he released the books. And my roommate at the time, Nick, um, he was a, what amounts to a teacher's aide at CIA, so I guess like sous chef <laughs> would be the, the best uh, way to describe him. And he got to hang out with this guy, and he did a lot of the uh, prep and setup for his, uh, his demo, the guy who wrote the books. Um, really cool stuff. He told me a bunch of stories, and he actually got to use an anti-griddle. It was really cool. Uh, the description was awesome. Uh, so 
A little bit of further research says that this rolled ice cream is in the Thai style, and it began trending last year, but it seems that this year it really, really hit. Uh, Eater is saying that rolled ice cream is the new Froyo. I disagree. I think that Froyo will always be Froyo. Ice cream will always be ice cream, and this rolled ice cream is a flash of the pan. Uh, we're also, circling back, we're also seeing a lot of Pokemon uh, because of Pokemon Go, the popularity of that. We're seeing a lot of Pokemon this summer in food, things with like Pokemon faces on it or burger patties shaped like Pikachu or people outside their, their fast casual restaurants dressed as a Pokemon trying to get people in the door um, or registering one's restaurant for a Pokestop. In July, that's when everything really coalesced with Pokemon Go, and everybody jumped on the, the, the train, the hype train for that. I think it's going to start to fade away, as the game already has one of my best friends, Dave, um, who is a great cook. He's in the industry. Uh, he's going to be on in a couple weeks. Dave Bellerin, the plate sculptor. We're going to have him on to talk about what he sees as restaurant culture, uh, and how people kind of live and survive in kitchens and the, the kitchen lifestyle. That's coming up in a couple weeks. Um, but he was really all in on the grind for Pokemon Go in July and August. And in the last few weeks, when I would text him and say, hey, dude, let's hang out, instead of saying, sure, let's go to Union Square or let's go to Central Park or Washington Square to play Pokemon... Instead, he's like, all right, yeah, let's just go out to eat. Before, he was obsessed with it. You know, he um, he would make fun of me because I wasn't obsessed. I wasn't as obsessed with Pokemon Go as he was. I played a little bit, but he was grinding. He went and bought two uh, separate external batteries to make sure his phone wouldn't die while he was out catching the Pokemans. Another thing we're seeing here uh, in the city in terms of food trends is emoji menus. I'm 31, dude. I'm too old for emojis, but let's see if I can read this picture. The first, the first line says starter. There's a cow, a chicken, and it looks like money. Is that money? With carrots and something and cheese. Okay. This seems a little bit ridiculous. Restaurants are for grown-ups. Well, good restaurants are... And I'll take that back. Fine restaurants are for everyone. But I would say the people who go out to dine are people with money, and generally speaking, people with money don't really get into emojis. Well, the people with the kind of disposable income who go out to fine restaurants, generally speaking, don't mess with emojis in this in this way, in, in this format. Um, menus should have words, occasionally pictures if you're at a fast food establishment or a fast casual establishment, but emojis on your menu, that's a no-go. I, I hope that one goes away. Uh, another thing that I've seen, not personally, but heard about, I've seen pictures of online, and apparently Smorgasburg is doing crazy stuff with it, uh, is the raindrop cake, which I think is really cool. Uh, like a, a, a big glob, I guess, for lack of a better term, of water that's been solidified um, and covered in brown sugar syrup. 
and then with a, a little bit of roasted soy flour. I mean, it's super interesting. It's really cool. It's cool looking. I'll post um, I'll post some pictures on Twitter at Danny underscore Nerdnik. You can catch me on Twitter at Danny underscore Nerdnik. Uh, I'll post a couple pictures up there. I'll put a couple on my Snapchat story. Uh, I think Snapchat is D-I-S-T-R-O-Y 420. That's Destroy 420. Put some pictures up on social media so you guys can take a look. Uh, the raindrop cake is super cool. That said, I mean, it's it's solidified water um, with sugar syrup and soy flour. While it sounds interesting, I don't think that's going to be a really big hit dessert. Uh, I expect it'll just be a, a flash in the plan, flash in the pan, um, just just like um, Pokemon Go food. Uh, and it's really cool. It's cool to look at. It's a great concept, but I don't think it's going to last. I think it's going to be remembered as an interesting thing, uh, a bit of a gimmick, and then it's going to go away. Uh, another thing I'm seeing is rainbow foods. I remember about 10 years ago when I was living in Burlington, Vermont, I was able to get rainbow bagels. Um, those were cool. They were just pretty much plain bagels with food dye in them. And they look tie-dye. Tie-dye's awesome. I've had tie-dye birthday cakes, but this was 10 years ago. Uh, so I don't know if really one could consider that a food trend from summer 2016, uh, but it looks good on Instagram. <laughs> and I think that's that's going to die off. At least I hope it dies off because it... Let me put it like this. Let's say you eat something with blue food dye in it. And then nature calls, inevitably, a few hours later, and you're curious as to whether or not everything is cleaned up, so to speak, and then you look down and there's blue. You're gonna think you're pretty sick if you forget you had food dyed food, right? So just as a personal hope, I hope it goes away. One thing I'm actually hoping doesn't go away is food inspired by the galaxy. I'm looking at a picture of some donuts here, and it's really cool. I hope that this follows up on the, the rainbow food trend, and it's, I mean, it's beautiful. One thing about me, I love outer space, I love the universe, I love pictures of interstellar things. Um, there's the Pillars of Creation, Google Pillars of Creation. It's this beautiful and now gone because it's so many light years away. By the time the picture reached Earth, uh, the pillars of creation were already gone. They're these, what look like pillars of interstellar gas. Um, and they're gorgeous, multicolored, and it's, it's beautiful. So using the colors of the deep galaxy and, and gases and stars and using these things to decorate food I find interesting. But again, food color, food dye, just not the best thing to put inside of your body. Um, all right, so food trends, summer 2016. I think that wraps that up. Um, let's see if there's anything else I need to uh, touch upon. No, uh, next time we're gonna talk about uh, Jewish food 
the culturally Jewish food, matzo ball soup, corned beef, etc., etc., and how it's kind of making a comeback. And um, how can it be a comeback if it never really went away? How new Jewish food, new Jewish cuisine is taking over and I think is going to stick around for quite some time. After the break, we will talk about the Loire Valley of France and the food and wine contained therein. Come back after the break. See you in a moment. Welcome back to the Danny Nerdnik Podcast, Episode 2. So, right now we're going to talk about a little place in France. Oh yes, a place so steeped in history and food and gastronomic culture that it goes back to the before the Roman times. Um, and this is a place that produces some of the best wine in the world, as well as some of the best cheese in the world. And it's also a World Heritage Site up there with, um, I don't know, the, the Lashan Giant Buddha in China. And, oh gosh, I'm sure numerous other places that I didn't do the research on. Probably should have. Ha <laughs> ha. Ah, all right. So, of course, uh, welcome back. Uh, Danny Nerdnik, a.k.a. Dan Schwartz, a.k.a. Destroy420, a.k.a. Your Boy Destroy. That's right. So we're going to talk about the Loire Valley in France. It is, um, it's named for the Loire River in central France, or I guess uh, some combination of either it was named for the river or the river was named for it. I expect the valley was named for the river. That makes a lot of sense to me. The um, Loire Valley is about 170 miles, 280 kilometers or thereabout. Uh, it's in the middle stretch of the Loire River. That's where the valley is. Uh, and it's primarily in the administrative region called Centre-Val-de-Loire. The area of the Loire Valley is about 800 square kilometers, which I guess is like 310 square miles. You can check my math. I really don't care. It's referred to as the cradle of the French and the garden of France because of the amount of vineyards, uh, fruit orchards for cherries and stuff, artichoke, asparagus fields. These all kind of line the banks of the river, making for a beautiful, scenic, pastoral place, a perfect place for wine and cheese, a perfect place for... A world heritage site for a place that was fought over for millennia, literally millennia. It's notable uh, for its historic towns and architecture as well as its wines, and it's been inhabited since the Middle Paleolithic period. In 2000, UNESCO added the central part of the Loire River Valley to its uh, list of world heritage sites. Like I said, it's um, it's an area steeped in history, and because of its riches. I guess you could say uh, it's natural riches. Uh, it's been fought over and influenced by a variety of people, from the Romans to Attila the Hun. The region kind of formed 
and came together as we know it today after its conquest by Julius Caesar in 52 BC. But it's Emperor Augustus who's credited with bringing peace and stability to the region. And this stability saw the growth of towns such as Orléans, uh, Tours, which was uh, originally called Cesaro Dunum, Le Mans, Angers, Bourges, and Chartres. Uh, their influence, that is to say the Roman influence, is still evident in these now fine cities to varying degrees, although one could make the argument that the Romans' greatest influence would be the introduction of the first Vitus vinifera vines to the region. I think you'll agree that France is identified by food, but the soul of France is in the wine. One could say the spirit of France is in the wine. Ha ha ha! Oh, wine puns. Uh, the key red grape varietals are Cab Franc, Cabernet Franc, and Gamay. Cabernet Franc really shines in the Loire Valley. It kind of expresses itself in different ways, from the light wines of Chinon to the medium-bodied oak-aged reds from Beaujuil. The key white grape varieties are Melon de Bourguignon and Chenin Blanc. Chenin Blanc, by the way, really delicious vino. If you can find a good one for less than 30 bucks, snatch that stuff up, drink it, enjoy. So the Loire River follows a 630-mile course, looks like on this map from a place near Beaujolais, right to the Atlantic Ocean. Now, it's, um, it's a temperate climate. It's cold in the winter, never really gets too, too hot in the summer, and that allows the wine to really, or the grapes to really sugar and find their feet so to speak. The vines really grow because of the river and the tributaries from it. That water feeds the vineyards, which of course allows for irrigation and the growth of, of some of the finest wine in France. The size of the region would make one think that the varietals of grapes would be difficult to, to remember, but really the four major varieties, like I said, Four major varietals are Sauve Blanc, Chenin Blanc, Melon de Bourguignon, and Cab Franc. So it's it's a good mix, but it's not too, too difficult to really um, figure out. There are a lot of AOCs in, uh, in the Loire Valley. I think if my research is correct, the number is 87 uh, appellations in there. And that's under AOC, VDQS, and Vindepay. There are a couple a couple notes about wine there that I would like to make note of. There's a, a sparkling wine, and there's a name which refers to any sparkling wine there that was made according to Methel Champenois, and they call that Cremant de Loire, and that would be your sparkling wine from the Loire Valley. Keep in mind that to be considered champagne in France, it needs to be grown in, grown and made in champagne. We've also got another generic designation called Vin de Pays du Jardin de la France. So that would be Vin de Pays, the Garden of France. That's funny because uh, the Loire Valley is referred to as the Garden of France. That's funny. And um, you could grow, let's say, Chardonnay there. And that would fall under the Vendepay du Jardin de la France because it's not one of the traditional grapes of the region. Let's talk about Sancerre and Puy Fumé. So, uh, Sancerre and Puy Fumé uh, have Sauve Blanc and Pinot Noir as their principal grapes. 
and the region is centered around the appellations of Sancerre and Puy-Fumé, uh, the two towns of Sancerre and Puy-sur-Loire, where Puy-Fumé is made, uh, are on opposite sides of the Loire River, with Sancerre being about 10 miles to the northwest of Puy. The Fumé is said to come from the flint interspersed with the limestone, uh, and that can kind of give a, a smoky uh, gun flint note to the wine. Another possibility for the name is the early morning fog caused by the river that can kind of blanket the vineyards, which, by the way, uh, is a phenomenon that you'll also see in California, in Napa, you'll see um, this fog roll off the Pacific Ocean and settle into Napa Valley right over the vines, and it'll, it'll really um, give character and terroir to the grapes and the, eventually the wine, which is very interesting to me at least. There's a video, I'll link to it on um, my Twitter and you can take a look at it for yourself. So, um, wines labeled just Puy or Puy sur Loire are often made with the Chasselard grape. Chasselard grape, huh? <laughs> um, unlike a lot of France when it comes to wine, the Sancerre region is uh, heavily mechanized. That is to say, they use mechanical harvesting as opposed to hand pickers. So it, it seems like they're technologically forward thinking. They're less traditional in their harvesting techniques, but I can only expect that uh, they stay as traditional as possible in their winemaking techniques. One of the best known producers in the region is Didier Dagenon, who until his death in 2008 was an influential voice in the area who advocated the reduction of yields of wine, of wine grapes, and the use of organic viticulture, which is to say um, no harmful pesticides, using complementary methods of uh, introducing animals into your, um, into your vineyard to stop the pests from eating your grapes before they're ready to harvest, which is something that's being done in California quite a bit now. Um, let's see, Puy-Fumé only produces whites, while Sancerre produces white, red, and rosé. All three are phenomenal. Uh, Sancerre white is one of those awesome things in the summer. If you can find some, uh, Cotin de Chavignol, which is, uh, a goat's cheese, uh, from the Loire Valley, if you can find a Sancerre, like a lovely Sancerre, and some Crottin de Chavignol, and you get yourself like some brioche and toast it and sit out on your porch during the middle of the summer and have yourself a little vino and cheese and bread, you will be in heaven. Huh. Brings me back. Really does. All right. When we get back, we will talk about, um, I guess, some cheese, maybe? Some cheese in the Loire Valley? Sounds good to me. See you in uh, just a few. This is the Danny Nerdnik podcast. Hope you stay with us.
Welcome back to the Danny Nerdnik podcast. This is your host, Dan Schwartz. Today we are talking about the Loire Valley and all the food and wine therein. Uh, let's pick it up with some cheese, huh? The last uh, one of the last things I spoke about in the last segment was Crotin de Chavignol, which is such a delicious, delicious little cheese. It's um, about three quarter the size of a hockey puck, and it's got this um, kind of ashy rind on the outside. On the inside, it's a spreadable, tangy, grassy, creamy goat cheese. In fact, in the Loire Valley, you'll find that uh, goat's milk cheese um, kind of kind of began there. In the 8th century, when the Saracens of Arab descent were repelled at Poitiers, um, they left behind their goats and their recipes for making this incredible cheese from goat's milk. I know when you think about French cheese, you're like, oh, well, the French must have invented cheese making. They're, they're absolutely the best. Maybe. But maybe they got their knowledge from other places. Now, in modern times, people would kind of call that cultural appropriation and everybody would get triggered and up in arms over it. But the truth is, we're all human, right? And the culture of one region really is, when you think about it, the culture of every single human being on the face of this planet. We're not French or American or British or Japanese or Thai or Canadian, were citizens of the planet Earth. And the collected knowledge that we have gained over the course of our existence on this planet belongs to everyone. I just want to make that clear. The knowledge we have as humans belongs to every human. All right, so now that I've gotten that out of the way, let's talk about the cheeses in the Loire Valley. So, there are a lot of quaint villages on the Loire River, uh, and a lot of them produce cheeses of different sizes and shapes. But there are six AOCs, Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée, um, and here they are. Saint-Maur de Torin, celle sur cher Valencay, Pouligné-Saint-Pierre, Chabichou de Politou, and Crotin de Chavignol. There are currently 42 different French cheeses with AOC status. And an AOC label um, indicates quality, and it guarantees that the, that the product was made within a specified region of France following uh, the established and traditional methods of production. Like I was saying uh, in the last segment regarding Champagne, Champagne is not a style of wine. It's any sparkling French wine, French white wine, produced in the Champagne region of France. You can produce a, a sparkling white wine outside of, outside of Champagne, but it's going to have a different name. It's not from the Champagne AOC. Now, the AOC system extends, like I said, to cheese, to different foods, not just cheese and wine, but um, uh, I guess... Uh, Armagnacs, cognacs, really any any kind of consumable will be eligible if it goes back far enough, I think. This is 
Uh, this is just me remembering I might be completely off base. If I am, if I'm completely wrong, please hit me below in the comments section and tell me exactly what I screwed up. All right. So let's talk about some uh, individual cheeses, huh? So let's start with Valence or Valence. Uh, Valence, I'm going to call it Valence. Valence cheese looks like a small black period. Pyramid. Period. Pyramid. <laughs> Valence cheese looks like a small black pyramid. The story goes that the shape of the cheese was originally a perfect pyramid, but when Napoleon returned from a disastrous campaign in Egypt, he stopped at Valence Castle and the cheese <laughs> reminded him of the pyramids and he got really pissed off. So he chopped off the top of the cheese with his sword. Uh, and I, I guess um, because of that, the cheese kind of looks the way it does now, uh, like a a uh, pyramid with the head chopped off. Uh, the goat's cheese, the Valence goat's cheese, has a rind of natural mold, and it's covered with a salted powdered charcoal, and it goes really nicely with a glass of Quincy Rilly or Sancerre. Uh, saint Maud de Torin is a blue-gray mold-covered uh, long log of goat's cheese, and uh, the cheese is mature and balanced and round with salt, sourness, and an aroma of walnut. Jeez, I really shouldn't do this podcast when I'm hungry. I could totally go for some cheese right now. Um, and the cheese, this cheese, uh, Saint-Maul de Torin, is produced all year long, and it's nicely complemented by a glass of Chinon or Vouvray. By the way, Vouvray, uh, there's some great bubbles made with Vouvray, or made in Vouvray, I should say. Sel uh, sur cher also has a rind of natural mold, which is covered with uh, powdered and salted charcoal. Um, the pate is hard at first and then moist, heavy and kind of clay-like as it blends and melts in the mouth. Ooh. The taste is slightly sour and salty with a little bit of sweetness, and it goes well with the uh, Pouille Fumé or Sancerre. Ah, it sounds so good right about now. Pouligny, uh, Pouligny Saint-Pierre, uh, nicknamed the Eiffel Tower or Pyramid because of its shape. Um, the rind is natural mold. Uh, the pate is a soft, is soft, moist, uh, white, and crumbly. Um, the taste kind of has a sour and salty uh, feel to it first, and that's followed by sweetness. Um, and this also goes great with Sancerre or Rilly. Uh, Chabichou de Politeau has a thin rind of white, yellow, or blue mold and a delicate, slightly uh, sweet-ish flavor. And it goes well with Puy Fumé or Sancerre. Uh, I, uh, there's a, a phrase that I learned at culinary school, and it goes as such. If it grows together, it goes together. So if you see that uh, Riouilly or Sancerre or Puy Fumé, it's... Um, it's probably acceptable to think that it was made near where these wines are made, and that's why they grow together. Uh, that's why they go together <laughs> so well. Uh, and lastly, my favorite, my favorite num num uh, French cheese from the Loire Valley is Crotin de Chavignol, and it is, an, it's um hard and black and knobbly on the surface and the taste is a balance of sourness and sweetness and a little bit of salt it goes great with a glass of Sancerre de Chavignol um, 
Cotin de Chavignol, C-R-O-T-T-I-N, D-E-C-H-A-V-I-G-N-O-L, is so named because it it looks like a poop. <laughs> it looks like a little uh, little horse pucky, uh, giving it the name Crottin. Uh, yeah, so that's a little overview of the num num cheeses of the Loire Valley. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, a couple thank yous, a little bit of housekeeping, and uh, social media links. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Danny Nerdnick Podcast, Season 1, Episode 2. Thanks for sticking with us. Hopefully today you learned a little something about the food, wine, and cheese of the Loire Valley of France. A little bit about the history of the Loire Valley of France. Isn't that interesting about the Roman stuff? I never knew. Never knew. So, a couple thank yous to dole out. First one, to you. If you're sitting there listening to the Danny Nerdnik podcast. Thank you. Really, from the bottom of my heart. This means a lot to me. I'm, I'm really trying to get this thing off the ground, and every single set of ears that listens to this show helps with that goal. So thank you. The second thank you, of course, to the Loire Valley for being so darn awesome. Sancerre wine, come on now. Delicious. All right. So uh, let's see. A little bit of housekeeping. You can uh, get me on social media on Twitter at Danny underscore Nerdnik. Of course, uh, soundcloud.com slash Danny underscore Nerdnik. You can get me at Oh No They Got Me on Snapchat and Eat Ribs underscore Listen, the number two fish with a PH. Eat Ribs underscore Listen to the number two fish with a PH, like the band on Instagram, and the same on Reddit, so that's eat ribs underscore listen to the number two fish, like the band, on Reddit. Give me a follow on any of these social media platforms. Uh, comments, questions, ideas, recommendations, hit me up. Let me know. By the way, we now have a Gmail account, which is dannynerdnick at gmail.com. Also, as of the release of this episode you will be able to find us on the iTunes podcast store. All right. So um, favorite us, subscribe, download, comment, give us a five-star review. Thanks so much. All right. Remember, don't do anything I wouldn't do. But if you do, do it well. Have a great one, guys. See you next time. Won't you come out